Taz, The Temporary Autonomous Zone, Ontological Anarchy, Poetic Terrorism, by Hakim Bey, an adult brain audiobook production, read by Graham Dunlop. Acknowledgements Chaos, The Broadsheets of Ontological Anarchism, was first published in 1985 by Grim Reaper Press of Weehawken, New Jersey. A later reissue was published in Providence, Rhode Island, and this edition was pirated in Boulder, Colorado. Another edition was released by Verlag Gollum of Providence in 1990 and pirated in Santa Cruz, California by Wee Press. The Temporary Autonomous Zone was performed at the Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics in Boulder and on a WBAI-FM in New York City in 1990. Thanks to the following publications, current and defunct, in which some of these pieces appeared, no doubt I've lost or forgotten many, sorry, Chaos, London, Ganymede, London, Pan, Amsterdam, Popular Reality, Exquisite Corpse, also Stiffest of the Corpse, City Lights, Anarchy, Columbia Mo, Fact Sheet 5, Dharma Combat, OVO, City Lights Review, Rants and Incendiary Tracks, Amok, Apocalypse Culture, Amok, Mondo 2000, The Sporadical, Black Eye, Moorish Science Monitor, Fay, Fag Rag, The Storm, Panic, Chicago, Bolo Log, Zurich, Anathema, Seditious, Delicious, Minor Problems, London, Aqua, Prakalapana. Also, thanks to the following individuals, Jim Fleming, James Conline, Sue Ann Harkey, Sharon Gannon, Dave Mandel, Bob Black, Robert Anton Wilson, William Burroughs, P.M., Joel Barocco, Adam Parfrey, Brett Rutherford, Jake Rabinowitz, Alan Ginsberg, Anne Waldman, Frank Torrey, Andre Cordrescu, Dave Crowbar, Ivan Stang, Nathaniel Tarn, Chris Funkhauser, Steve Englander, Alex Trotter, Ben Myers, and Zexoxial Editions for permission to reprint Aimless Wandering in this edition. Preface to the Second Edition If this book were a person, it'd be old enough by now to read itself. Versions of the first part, the broad sheets of ontological anarchism, were circulated as flyers starting in 1984, and thereafter appeared here and there in dozens, maybe hundreds, of zines and amateur publications and anthologies. In 1985, the broadsheets were published as a book by Grim Reaper Press in Weehawken, New Jersey, and in 1991, Autono Media of Brooklyn collected them, along with another series of flyers and a long essay on the temporary autonomous zone under the title TAZ. Taz, at the same time all this material had appeared on the early internet, under the anarchist anti-copyright agreement, a process I had nothing to do with. This net presence helped publicize the book, which has remained in print and sold fairly well. Subsequently, it has been translated into Dutch, German, French, Portuguese, plus a different version in Brazil, Spanish, both in Spain and Latin America, Japanese, Slovenian, Turkish, and soon Norwegian and Croatian. Bits have appeared in other languages, including Hungarian and Bengali. I should mention that the book has been attacked as dangerous and unsavory, example by Murray Bookchin, and this probably helped to boost sales somewhat. Taz feels to me very much a book of the 80s, a strangely romantic and more erotic era than the 90s or the nameless decade we now inhabit. Looking back, I'm amazed at the extent of its anti-pessimism. The globe was undergoing rapid change, the so-called end of history, even as the book appeared. But Taz still viewed the world under the sign of a dialectic that had ruled it since my birth. The Cold War, the Tweedledum-Tweedledee clash of capitalism versus Stalinism, the basic notion of the temporary autonomous zone was meant as a contribution to a desired third way, 
a kind of evasion of the dialectic, an alternative to both capital and ideology. With the collapse of the USSR in 1989, the old historical dialectic also imploded, although no one really seemed to notice till about 1991 in the first Gulf War. In 1994, the Zapatistas of Chiapas offered the world a new politics of resistance to globalism, but the rebellion has so far failed to spread. No urban Zapatismo has appeared. Instead, we now have a new phase of neoliberalism, hegemonic globalism, or imperium. This signals the apparent failure of all third ways, such as third-world neutralist socialism and non-aligned leftism, including even the hippie punk anarchism that informs Taz. In fact, even the third world has disappeared. How can there exist a third world without a second world? What we've got is one world, a dismal parody of the old liberal and internationalist dream. One world, but with some excluded zones and a single superpower that doesn't have to obey the rules. Of course, the temporary autonomous zone appears not just as an historical moment but as a psycho-spiritual state or even existential condition. Humans seem to need the peak experience of autonomy shared by cohesive groups. Free freedom, as Rimbaud says. Not only in imagination, but in real space-time, in order to give value and meaning to the social. Now that we live in a world where, in the words of Lady Margaret Baroness Thatcher, there is no such thing as society, the Taz seems more relevant than ever. Things may look different in other faraway lands, but from the point of view of the beast's belly, it sometimes appears that the Taz is the last and only means of creating an outside or true space of resistance to the totality. From this perspective, I think perhaps the least useful part of the book is its section on the internet. I envisioned the net as an adjunct to the Taz, a technology and service to the Taz, a means of potentiating its emergence. I propose the term web for this function of the net. What a joke. Time magazine identified me as a cyber guru and explained that the Taz exists in cyberspace. Web became the official term for the commercial surveillance function of the net, and by 1995 it had succeeded in burying the anarchic potential of the net, if any really existed, under a mass of advertising and dot-com scams. What's left of the left now? seems to inhabit a ghost world where a few thousand hits pass for political action and virtual community takes the place of human presence. The web has become a perfect mirror of global capital, borderless, triumphalist, evanescent, aesthetically bankrupt, monocultural, violent, a force for atomization and isolation, for the disappearance of knowledge, of sexuality, and of all the subtle senses the Taz must exist in geographical, odorous, tactile, tasty physical space, ranging in size from, say, a double bed to a large city. Otherwise, it's no more than a blueprint or a dream. Utopian dreams have value as critical tools and heuristic devices. But there's no substitute for lived life, real presence, adventure, risk, love. If you make media the center of life, then you will lead a mediated life but the Taz wants to be immediate or nothing else. The Taz exists in a more fluid relation to time than to space. It can be truly temporary, but also perhaps periodic, like the recurring anatomy of the holiday, the vacation, the summer camp. It could even become a permanent Paz, like a successful commune or bohemian enclave. Some Pazes could be clandestine, like the areas of rural America and Canada secretly controlled by hemp farmers. Others could operate more openly as religious sects, art colonies, trailer parks, squats, etc. You could even talk about relative degrees of tazness. A bit of autonomy is better than none, after all. I find hobby groups and old-fashioned fraternal organizations interesting in this regard. The present oneness of the totality feels spurious as hell. More than spectacular, more than simulated, downright spurious. Surely, someday soon, some real opposition will begin to cohere. A new movement will appear based on both solidarity and difference. As opposed to the sameness and separation of commodity culture and the global image, no one can predict the shape of this movement because it will be in some sense post-ideological as well as post-religious, spontaneous, experiential, popular. 
I suspect it will be passionately green and somewhat anti-civilization with a touch of Luddite technophobia. It will be poor and deeply spiritual, not religious, but perhaps shamanistic. It will be social and resolutely anti-capitalist. It will probably emerge from the former so-called fourth world and the cutting edge of resistance to genetic imperialism and corporate neocolonialism. It will take different forms in different places, avoiding big confrontations using new guerrilla tactics of resistance and opening up new kinds of liberated space, time, areas. Some of these areas will be Taz's. And if we're dreaming, why not dream big? A whole country or bioregion transformed into a permanent autonomous zone. If postmodernism offers us the melancholic freedom to pick and browse the ruins of the past and salvage whatever shards we may find amusing, why not dig up once again surrealist archaeology, some of the shattered relics of resistance, revolt, even revolution? Can these antiques ever prove dangerous again? Can we evade or even oppose the final enclosure and learn to create our own outside? May Day, 2003 Chaos The Broadsheets of Ontological Anarchism Dedicated to Ustad Mahmud Ali Abd al-Kabir Chaos, Poetic Terrorism, Amor Fu Wild Children, Paganism, Art Sabotage, The Assassins, Pyrotechnics, Chaos Myths, Pornography, Crime, Sorcery, Advertisement. Chaos Never Died. Primordial, uncarved block, soul-worshipful monster, inert and spontaneous, more ultraviolet than any mythology, like the shadows before Babylon. The original, undifferentiated oneness of being still radiates serene as the black penance of assassins, random and perpetually intoxicated. Chaos comes before all principles of order and entropy. It's neither a god nor a maggot. Its idiotic desires encompass and define every possible choreography, all meaningless ethers and phlogistons. Its masks are crystallizations of its own facelessness, like clouds. Everything in nature is perfectly real, including consciousness. There's absolutely nothing to worry about. Not only have the chains of the law been broken, they never existed. Demons never guarded the stars. The empire never got started. Eros never grew a beard. No, listen. What happened was this. They lied to you, sold you ideas of good and evil, gave you distrust of your body and shame for your prophethood of chaos. Invented words of disgust for your molecular love, mesmerized you with inattention, bored you with civilization and all its usurious emotions. There is no becoming, no revolution, no struggle, no path. Already you're the monarch of your own skin. Your inviolable freedom waits to be completed only by the love of other monarchs. A politics of dream, urgent as the blueness of sky. To shed all the illusory rights and hesitations of history demands the economy of some legendary Stone Age. Shamans, not priests. Bards, not lords. Hunters, not police. Gatherers of paleolithic laziness, gentle as blood, going naked for a sign or painted as birds, poised on the wave of explicit presence. The clockness, now ever. Agents of chaos cast burning glances at anything or anyone capable of bearing witness to their condition, their fever of lux e voluptus. I am awake only in what I love and desire to the point of terror. Everything else is just shrouded furniture, quotidian anesthesia, shit for brains, subreptilian ennui of totalitarian regimes, banal censorship and useless pain. Avatars of chaos act as spies, saboteurs, criminals of amor fu, neither selfless nor selfish, accessible as children, mannered as barbarians, chafed with obsessions, unemployed, sensually deranged, wolf angels, mirrors for contemplation, eyes like flowers, pirates of all signs and meanings. Here we are crawling the cracks between walls of church, state, school, and factory all the paranoid monoliths, 
Cut off from the tribe by feral nostalgia, we tunnel after lost words, imaginary bombs. The last possible deed is that which defines perception itself, an invisible golden cord that connects us, illegal dancing in the courthouse corridors. If I were to kiss you here, they'd call it an act of terrorism. So let's take our pistols to bed and wake up the city at midnight like drunken bandits celebrating with a fusillade, the message of the taste of chaos. Poetic Terrorism Weird dancing in all night, computer banking lobbies, unauthorized pyrotechnic displays, land art, earthworks as bizarre alien artifacts strewn in state parks, Bulgarize houses, but instead of stealing, leave poetic, terroristic objects. Kidnap someone and make them happy. Pick someone at random and convince them that they're the heir to an enormous, useless, and amazing fortune. Say, 5,000 square miles of Antarctica. Or an aging circus elephant. Or an orphanage in Bombay. Or a collection of alchemical MSS. Later, they will come to realize that for a few moments they believed in something extraordinary and will perhaps be driven as a result to seek out some more intense mode of existence. Bolt-up brass commemorative plaques in places, public or private, where you have experienced a revelation or had a particular fulfilling sexual experience, etc. Go naked for a sign. Organize a strike in your school or workplace on the grounds that it does not satisfy your need for indolence and spiritual beauty. Graffiti art loans some grace to ugly subways and rigid public monuments. PT art can also be created for public places. Poems scrawled in courthouse lavatories, small fetishes abandoned in parks and restaurants. Xerox art under windshield wipers of parked cars. Big character slogans pasted on playground walls. Anonymous letters mailed to random or chosen recipients. Mail fraud. Pirate radio transmissions, wet cement. The audience reaction or aesthetic shock produced by PT ought to be at least as strong as the emotion of terror, powerful disgust, sexual arousal, superstitious awe, sudden intuitive breakthrough, data-esque angst. No matter whether the PT is aimed at one person or many, no matter whether it is signed or anonymous, if it does not change someone's life, aside from the artist, it fails. P.T. is an act in a theater of cruelty which has no stage, no rows of seats, no tickets, and no walls. In order to work at all, P.T. must categorically be divorced from all conventional structures for art consumption. Galleries, publications, media. Even the guerrilla situationist tactics of street theater are perhaps too well known and expected now. An exquisite seduction carried out not only in the cause of mutual satisfaction, but also as a conscious act in a deliberately beautiful life, may be the ultimate PT. The P-terrorist behaves like a confidence trickster whose aim is not money, but change. Don't do PT for other artists. Do it for people who will not realize, at least for a few moments, that what you have done is art. Avoid recognizable art categories. Avoid politics. Don't stick around to argue. Don't be sentimental. Be ruthless. Take risks. Vandalize only what must be defaced. Do something children will remember all their lives. But don't be spontaneous unless the PT muse has possessed you. Dress up. Leave a false name. Be legendary. The best PT is against the law, but don't get caught. Art as crime. Crime as art. Amor Fu Amor Fu is not a social democracy. It is not a parliament of two. The minutes of its secret meetings deal with meanings too enormous but too precise for prose. Not this, not that. Its book of emblems trembles in your hand. Naturally, it shits on schoolmasters and police, but it sneers at liberationists and ideologues as well. It is not a clean, well-lit room. A topological charlatan laid out its corridors and abandoned parks, its ambush decor of luminous black and membranous maniacal red. Each of us owns half the map. Like two Renaissance potentates, we define a new culture with our anathemized mingling of bodies, merging of liquids, the imaginal seams of our city-state blur in our sweat. Ontological anarchism never came back from its last fishing trip. 
So long as no one squeals to the FBI, chaos cares nothing for the future of civilization. Amor Fu breeds only by accident. Its primary goal is ingestion of the galaxy, a conspiracy of transmutation. Its only concern for the family lies in the possibility of incest. Grow your own, every human a pharaoh. Oh, most sincere of readers, my semblance, my brother-sister, and in the masturbation of a child it finds concealed, like a Japanese paper flower pill, the image of the crumbling of the state. Words belong to those who use them only till someone else steals them back. The surrealists disgraced themselves by selling Amar food to the ghost machine of abstraction. They sought in their unconscious only power over others, and in this they followed Dased, who wanted freedom only for grown-up white men to eviscerate women and children. Amor Fu is saturated with its own aesthetic. It fills itself to the borders of itself with the trajectories of its own gestures. It runs on angels' clocks. It is a knot of fit fate for commissars and shopkeepers. Its ego evaporates in the mutability of desire. Its communal spirit withers in the selfishness of obsession. Amor Fu involves non-ordinary sexuality, the way sorcery demands non-ordinary consciousness. The Anglo-Saxon post-Protestant world channels all its suppressed sensuality into advertising and splits itself into clashing mobs. Hysterical prudes versus promiscuous clones and former ex-singles. AF doesn't want to join anyone's army. It takes no part in the gender wars. It is bored by equal opportunity employment. In fact, it refuses to work for a living. It doesn't complain doesn't explain, never votes, and never pays taxes. Amor Fu would like to see every bastard, love child, come to term and birthed. AF thrives on anti-entropic devices. AF loves to be molested by children. AF is better than prayer, better than sensimilia. AF takes its own palm trees and moon wherever it goes. AF admires tropicalismo, sabotage, breakdancing. Layla and Majnun, the smells of gunpowder and sperm. AF is always illegal, whether it's disguised as a marriage or a Boy Scout troop. Always drunk, whether on the wine of its own secretions or the smoke of its own polymorphous virtues. It is not the derangement of the senses, but rather their apotheosis. Not the result of freedom, but rather its precondition. Lux et voluptas. Wild children. The full moon's unfathomable light path, mid-May midnight in some state that starts with I, so two-dimensional it can scarcely be said to possess any geography at all, the beams so urgent and tangible you must draw the shades in order to think in words. No question of writing to wild children. They think in images. Prose is for them a code not yet fully digested and ossified, just as for us never fully trusted. You may write about them so that others who have lost the silver chain may follow, or write for them, making the story and emblem a process of seduction into your own paleolithic memories, a barbaric enticement to liberty, chaos as chaos understands it. For this otherworld species, or third sex, les enfants savages, fancy and imagination are still undifferentiated, unbridled play at one and the same time the source of our art and of all the race's rarest eros. To embrace disorder both as wellspring of style and voluptuous storehouse, a fundamental of our alien and occult civilization, our conspiratorial aesthetic, our lunatic espionage, this is the action, let's face it, either of an artist of some sort or of a ten- or thirteen-year-old. Children whose clarified senses betray them into a brilliant sorcery of beautiful pleasure reflect something feral and smutty in the nature of reality itself. Natural ontological anarchists, angels of chaos, their gestures and body odors broadcast around them a jungle of presence, a forest of prescience complete with snakes, ninja weapons, turtles, futuristic shamanism, incredible mess, piss, ghosts, sunlight, Jerking off birds, nests, and eggs. Gleeful aggression against the grown-ups of those lower planes so powerless to englobe their either destructive epiphanies 
or creation in the form of antics, fragile but sharp enough to slice moonlight. And yet, the denizens of these inferior jerkwater dimensions truly believe they control the destinies of wild children. And down here, such vicious beliefs actually sculpt most of the substance of happenstance. The only ones who actually wish to share the mischievous destiny of those savage runaways or minor gorillas rather than dictate it. The only ones who can understand that cherishing and unleashing are the same act. These are mostly artists, anarchists, perverts, heretics, a band apart as much from each other as from the world, or able to meet only as wild children might, locking gazes across a dinner table while adults gibber from behind their masks. Too young for Harley choppers, flunkouts, breakdancers, scarcely pubescent poets of flat lost railroad towns. A million sparks falling from the skyrockets of Rimbod and Mowgli. Slender terrorists whose gaudy bombs are compacted of polymorphous love and the precious shards of popular culture. Punk gunslingers dreaming of piercing their ears. Animist bicyclists gliding in the pewter dusk through welfare streets of accidental flowers. Out-of-season gypsy skinny-dippers, smiling sideways glancing thieves of power totems, small change and panther-bladed knives. We sense them everywhere. We publish this offer to trade the corruption of our own lux et godium for their perfect gentle filth. So get this. Our realization, our liberation, depends on theirs. Not because we ape the family, those misers of love, who hold hostages for a banal future, nor the state which schools us, all to sink beneath the event horizon of a tedious usefulness. No, but because we and they, the wild ones, are images of each other, linked and bordered by that silver chain which defines the pale of sensuality, transgression, and vision. We share the same enemies, and our means of triumphant escape are also the same, a delirious and obsessive play powered by the spectral brilliance of the wolves and their children. Paganism Constellations by which to steer the bark of the soul. If the Muslim understood Islam, he would become an idol worshipper. Mahmud Shebastari. Legua, ugly opener of doors with a hook in his head and cowrie shells for eyes, black centuria cigar and glass of rum. Same as Ganesh, elephant-head fat boy of beginnings who rides a mouse. The organ which senses the numinous atrophies with the senses. Those who cannot feel Baraka cannot know the caress of the world. Herman Poimandras taught the animation of Idolons, the magic indwelling of icons by spirits. But those who cannot perform this rite on themselves and on the whole palpable fabric of material being will inherit only blues, rubbish, decay, the pagan body becomes a court of angels who all perceive this place, this very grove, as paradise. If there is a paradise, surely it is here, inscription on a Mughal garden plate. But ontological anarchism is too paleolithic for eschatology. Things are real, sorcery works, bush spirits one with the imagination, death and unpleasant vagueness, the plot of Ovid's Metamorphosis, an epic of mutability the personal mythscape. Paganism has not yet invented laws, only virtues. No priestcraft, no theology or metaphysics or morality, but a universal shamanism in which no one attains real humanity without a vision. Food, money, sex, sleep, sun, sand, and sensimilia. Love, truth, peace, freedom, and justice. Beauty. Dionysius, the drunk boy on a panther. Rank, adolescent, sweat. Pan Goatman slogs through the solid earth up to his waist as if it were the sea, his skin crusted with moss and lichen. Eros multiplies himself into a dozen pastoral naked Iowa farm boys with muddy feet and pond scum on their thighs. Raven, the potlatch trickster, sometimes a boy, old woman, bird who stole the moon, pine needles floating on a pond, heckle jekyll totem pole head, chorus line of crows with silver eyes dancing on the woodpile. Same as Simar, the hunchback, albino, hermaphrodite, shadow puppet, patron of the Javanese revolution. Imaya, blue star, sea goddess, and patroness of queers. Same as Terra, blue-gray aspect of Kali, 
necklace of skulls dancing on Shiva's stiff lingam, licking monsoon clouds with her yard-long tongue. Same as Loro Kedil, Jasper Green Javanese sea goddess who bestows the power of invulnerability on sultans by tantric intercourse in magic towers and caves. From one point of view, ontological anarchism is extremely bare, stripped of all qualities and possessions, poor as chaos itself. But from another point of view, it pullulates with baroqueness like the fucking temples of Kathmandu or an alchemical emblem book. It sprawls on its divan eating locum and entertaining heretical notions, one hand inside its baggy trousers. The hulls of its pirate ships are lacquered black, lateen sails are red, black banners with the device of a winged hourglass. A South China Sea of the Mind, off a jungle-flat coast of palms, rotten gold temples to unknown bestiary gods, island after island, the breeze like wet yellow silk on naked skin, navigating by pantheistic stars, hierophany on hierophany, light upon light against the luminous and chaotic dark. Art Sabotage Art sabotage strives to be perfectly exemplary, but at the same time retain an element of opacity. Not propaganda, but aesthetic shock. Appallingly direct, yet also subtly angled. Action as metaphor. Art sabotage is the dark side of poetic terrorism. Creation through destruction. But it cannot serve any party, nor any nihilism, nor even art itself. Just as the banishment of illusion enhances awareness so the demolition of aesthetic blight sweetens the air of the world of discourse, of the other. Art sabotage serves only consciousness, attentiveness, awakeness. A.S. goes beyond paranoia, beyond destruction. The ultimate criticism, physical attack on offensive art, aesthetic jihad. The slightest taint of petty egoicity or even of personal taste spoils its purity and vitiates its force. A.S. can never seek power only release it. Individual artworks, even the worst, are largely irrelevant. A.S. seeks to damage institutions which use art to diminish consciousness and profit by delusion. This or that poet or painter cannot be condemned for lack of vision, but malign ideas can be assaulted through the artifacts they generate. Muzak is designed to hypnotize and control. Its machinery can be smashed. Public book burnings... Why should rednecks and customs officials monopolize this weapon? Novels about children possessed by demons. The New York Times bestseller list. Feminist tracks against pornography. School books. Especially social studies, civics, health. Piles of New York Post, Village Voice, and other supermarket papers. Choice gleanings of Gitan publishers. A few harlequin romances. A festive atmosphere, wine bottles and joints passed around on a clear autumn afternoon. To throw money away at the stock exchange was pretty decent poetic terrorism. But to destroy the money would have been a good art sabotage. To seize TV transmission and broadcast a few pirated minutes of incendiary, chaotic art would constitute a feat of P.T. But simply to blow up the transmission tower would be perfectly adequate art sabotage. If certain galleries and museums deserve an occasional brick through their windows, not destruction but a jolt to complacency, then what about banks? Galleries turn beauty into a commodity, but banks transmute imagination into feces and debt. Wouldn't the world gain a degree of beauty with each bank that could be made to tremble or fall? But how? Art sabotage should probably stay away from politics. It's so boring. But not from banks. Don't picket, vandalize, don't protest, deface. When ugliness, poor design, and stupid waste are forced upon you, turn Luddite, throw your shoe in the works, retaliate. Smash the symbols of the empire in the name of nothing but the heart's longing for grace. The Assassins Across the luster of the desert and into the polychrome hills, hairless and ochre, violet dun and umber, at the top of a desiccate blue valley, travelers find an artificial oasis. A fortified castle in Saracenic style, enclosing a hidden garden. As guests of the old man of the mountain, Hassan I. Saba, they climb rock-cut steps to the castle. 
here the day of resurrection has already come and gone. Those within live outside profane time, which they hold at bay with daggers and poisons. Behind crenellations and slit-windowed towers, scholars and fedayin wake in narrow monolithic cells. Star maps, astrolabes, alembics and retorts, piles of open books in a shaft of morning sunlight, an unsheathed scimitar. Each of those who enter the realm of the imam of one's own being becomes a sultan of inverted revelation, a monarch of abrogation and apostasy. In a central chamber scalloped with light and hung with tapestried arabesques, they lean on bolsters and smoke long shibuks of hashish scented with opium and amber. For them, the hierarchy of being has compacted to a dimensionless punctum of the real. For them, the chains of law have been broken. They end their fasting with wine. For them, the outside of everything is its inside. Its true face shines through direct. But the garden gates are camouflaged with terrorism. Mirrors, rumors of assassination, trompe l'oeil, legends, pomegranate, mulberry, persimmon, the erotic melancholy of cypresses, membrane pink, shirazi roses, braziers of mechanaloes and benzoin, stiff shafts of ottoman tulips, carpets spread like make-believe gardens on actual lawns, a pavilion set with a mosaic of calligrams, a willow, a stream with watercress, a fountain crystalled underneath with geometry, the metaphysical scandal of bathing odalisks, of wet brown cupbearers hidden seeking in the foliage, water, greenery, beautiful faces. By night, Hassan Isabah, like a civilized wolf in a turban, stretches out on a parapet above the garden and glares at the sky, conning the asterisms of heresy in the mindless cool desert air. True, in this myth, some aspirant disciples may be ordered to fling themselves off the ramparts into the black, but also true that some of them will learn to fly like sorcerers. The emblem of Alamut holds in the mind a mandal or magic circle lost to history, but embedded or imprinted in consciousness. The old man flits like a ghost into tents of kings and bedrooms of theologians, past all locks and guards with forgotten Muslim ninja techniques, leaves behind bad dreams, stilettos on pillows, poussant bribes. The attar of his propaganda seeps into the criminal dreams of ontological anarchism. The heraldry of our obsessions displays the luminous black outlaw banners of the assassins, all of them pretenders to the throne of an imaginal Egypt, an occult space-light continuum consumed by still unimagined liberties. Pyrotechnics Invented by the Chinese, but never developed for war. A fine example of poetic terrorism. A weapon used to trigger aesthetic shock rather than kill. The Chinese hated war and used to go into mourning when armies were raised. Gunpowder more useful to frighten malign demons, delight children, fill the air with brave and risky-smelling haze. Class C thunderbombs from Kwantung. Bottle rockets, butterflies, M-80s, sunflowers. A forest in springtime. Revolution weather. Light your cigarette from the sizzling fuse of a haymarket black bomb. Imagine the air full of lami and succubi, oppressive spirits, police ghosts. Call some kid with a smoldering punk or kitchen match. Shaman apostle, summer gunpowder plots. Shatter the heavy night with pinched stars and pumped stars arsenic and antimony, sodium and calomel, a blitz of magnesium and shrill picric of potash, spur fire, lamblack and saltpetra, port fire and iron filings. Attack your local bank or ugly church with Roman candles and purple gold skyrockets, impromptu and anonymous, perhaps launched from back of pickup truck. Build frame lattice, lancework set pieces on the roofs of insurance buildings or schools. A kundalini snake or chaos dragon coiled barium green against the background of sodium oxalate yellow. Don't tread on me. Or copulating monsters shooting wads of jism fire at a Baptist old folks home. Cloud sculptor, smoke sculptor and flags. Air art, earthworks, fountains, water art, and fireworks.
Don't perform with Rockefeller grants and police permits for audiences of culture lovers. Evanescent incendiary mind bombs, scary mandalas flaring up on smug suburban nights. Alien green thunderheads of emotional plague blasted by Oregon blue. Vajra rays of lasered faux d'artifice. Comets that explode with the odor of hashish and radioactive charcoal. Swamp ghouls and will-o'-the-wisps haunting public parks. Fake St. Elmo's fire flickering over the architecture of the bourgeoisie. Strings of ladyfingers falling on the legislature floor. Salamander elementals attack well-known moral reformers. Blazing shellac. Sugar of milk. Strontium. Pitch. Gum water. Gerbs of Chinese fire. For a few moments, the air is ozone-sharp, drifting opal cloud of pungent dragon, phoenix smoke. For an instant, the empire falls, its princes and governors flee to their Stygian muck, plumes of sulfur from elf flamethrowers burning their pinched asses as they retreat. The assassin child, psyche of fire, holds sway for one brief dog-star hot night. Chaos Myths Unseen chaos, potekitia, unpossessed, unpassing, chaos of utter darkness, untouched and untouchable. Maori chant. Chaos perches on a sky mountain, a huge bird like a yellow bag or red fireball with six feet and four wings, has no face but dances and sings. Or chaos is a black long-haired dog, blind and deaf, lacking the five viscera. Chaos, the abyss comes first, then earth, Gaia, then desire, Eros. From these three proceed two pairs, Erebus and Old Night, Aether and Daylight. Neither being nor non-being, neither air nor earth nor space. What was enclosed? Where? Under whose protection? What was water, deep, unfathomable? Neither death nor immortality, day nor night. But one breathed by itself with no wind. Nothing else. Darkness swathed in darkness, unmanifest water. The one, hidden by void, felt the generation of heat, came into being as desire, first seed of mind. Was there an up or down? There were casters of seed. There were powers. Energy underneath, impulse above. But who knows for sure? Rig Veda. Tiamat, the chaos ocean, slowly drops from her womb silt and slime, the horizons, sky and watery wisdom. These offspring grow noisy and bumptious. She considers their destruction. But Marduk, the war god of Babylon, rises in rebellion against the old hag and her chaos monsters. Chthonic totems, worm, female ogre, great lion, mad dog, scorpion man. Howling storm, dragons wearing their glory like gods, and Tiamat herself a great sea serpent. Marduk accuses her of causing sons to rebel against fathers. She loves mist and cloud, principles of disorder. Marduk will be the first to rule, to invent government. In battle, he slays Tiamat and from her body orders the material universe. He inaugurates the Babylonian Empire. Then from gibbets and bloody entrails of Tiamat's incestuous son, he creates the human race to serve forever the comfort of gods and their high priests and anointed kings. Father Zeus and the Olympians wage war against Mother Gaia and the Titans. Those partisans of chaos, the old ways of hunting and gathering, of aimless wandering, androgyny and the license of beasts. Amun-Ra... Being sits alone in the primordial chaos ocean of none, creating all of the other gods by jerking off. But chaos also manifests as the dragon Apophis, whom Ra must destroy, along with his state of glory, his shadow, and his magic, in order that the pharaoh may safely rule a victory virtually recreated daily in imperial temples to confound the enemies of the state of cosmic order. Chaos is Huntun, emperor of the center. One day the South Sea, Emperor Shu, and the North Sea, Emperor Hu, Shu Hu, Lightning, paid a visit to Hun Tun, who always treated them well. Wishing to repay his kindness, they said, All beings have seven orifices for seeing, hearing, eating, shitting, etc. But poor old Hun Tun has none. 
Let's drill some into him. So they did, one orifice a day, till on the seventh day, chaos died. But chaos is also an enormous chicken's egg. Inside it, Pan Ku is born and grows for 18,000 years. At last, the egg opens up, splits into sky and earth, yang and yin. Now, Pan Ku grows into a column that holds up the universe, or else he becomes the universe. Breath, wind, eyes, sun and moon, blood and humors, rivers and seas, hair and lashes, stars and planets, sperm and pearls, marrow and jade, his fleas, human beings, etc. Or else he becomes the man-monster yellow emperor. Or else he becomes Lao Tzu, the prophet of Tao. In fact, poor old Hun Tan is the Tao itself. Nature's music has no existence outside things. The various apertures, pipes, flutes, all living beings together make up nature. The eye cannot produce things, and things cannot produce the eye, which is self-existent. Things are what they are spontaneously, not caused by something else. Everything is natural and does not know why it is so. The 10,000 things have 10,000 different states, all in motion, as if there were a true Lord to move them. But if we search for evidence of this Lord, we fail to find any. Cool sang. Every realized consciousness is an emperor whose sole form of rule is to do nothing to disturb the spontaneity of nature, the Tao. The sage is not chaos itself, but rather a loyal child of chaos. One of Pan Ku's fleas, a fragment of flesh of Tiamat's monstrous son. Heaven and earth, says Chuang Tzu, were born at the same time I was, and the ten thousand things are one with me. Ontological anarchism tends to disagree only with the Taoist total quietism. In our world, chaos has been overthrown by younger gods, moralists, phallocrats, banker priests, fit lords for serfs. If rebellion proves impossible, then at least a kind of clandestine spiritual jihad might be launched. Let it follow the war banners of the anarchist black dragon, Tiamat, Hun Tun. Chaos never died. Pornography In Persia, I saw that poetry is meant to be set to music and chanting or sung for one reason alone, because it works. A right combination of image and tune plunges the audience into a howl, something between emotional aesthetic mood and trance of hyper-awareness. Outbursts of weeping, fits of dancing, measurable physical response to art. For us, the link between poetry and body died with the Bardic era. We read under the influence of a Cartesian anesthetic gas. In North India, even non-musical recitation provokes noise and motion. Each good couplet applauded, wah, wah, with elegant hand-drive tossing of rupees, whereas we listen to poetry like some sci-fi brain in a jar, at best a wry chuckle or grimace, vestige of simian rictus, the rest of the body off on some other planet. In the East, poets are sometimes thrown in prison, a sort of compliment since it suggests the author has done something at least as real as theft or rape or revolution. Here, poets are allowed to publish anything at all, a sort of punishment in effect, prison without walls, without echoes, without palpable existence, shadow realm of print or of abstract thought, world without risk or eros. So poetry is dead again. And even if the mumia from its corpse returns some healing properties, auto-resurrection isn't one of them. If rulers refuse to consider poems as crimes, then someone must commit crimes that serve the function of poetry, or texts that possess the resonance of terrorism. At any cost, reconnect poetry to the body. Not crimes against bodies, but against ideas, and ideas in things, which are deadly and suffocating. Not stupid libertinage, but exemplary crimes, aesthetic crimes, crimes for love. In England, some pornographic books are still banned. Pornography has a measurable physical effect on its readers. Like propaganda, it sometimes changes lives because it uncovers true desires. Our culture produces most of its porn out of body hatred, but erotic art in itself makes a better vehicle for enchantment of being, consciousness, bliss as in certain oriental works. 
A sort of Western tantric porn might help galvanize the corpse, make it shine with some of the glamour of crime. America has freedom of speech because all words are considered equally vapid. Only images count. The censors love snaps of death and mutilation, but recoil in horror at the sight of a child masturbating. Apparently, they experience this as an invasion of their existential validity, their identification with the empire and its subtlest gestures. No doubt even to the most poetic porn would never revive the faceless corpse to dance and sing. Like the Chinese chaos bird. But imagine a script for a three-minute film set on a mythical isle of runaway children who inhabit ruins of old castles or build totem huts and junk assemblage nests. Mixture of animation, special effects, compugraphics, and color tape, edited tight as a fast-food commercial. But weird and naked, feathers and bones, tents sewn with crystal, black dogs, pigeon blood, flashes of amber limbs tangled in sheets, faces in starry masks kissing soft creases of skin, androgynous pirates, castaway faces of columbines sleeping on thigh-white flowers, nasty, hilarious piss jokes, pet lizards lapping spilt milk, nude breakdancing, Victorian bathtub with rubber ducks and pink boners. Alice on ganja. A tonal punk reggae scored for gamelan. Synthesizer, saxophones, and drums. Electric boogie lyrics sung by ethereal children's choir. Ontological anarchist lyrics crossed between Hafez and Pancho Villa. Lipoan, Bakunin, Kabir and Zara. Call it Chaos, the rock video. No, probably just a dream. Too expensive to produce, and besides, who would see it? Not the kids it was meant to seduce. Pirate TV is a futile fantasy. Rock merely another commodity. Forget the slicked Gesamtkunstwerk, then. Leaflet a playground with inflammatory smutty feuilletons. Porno propaganda. Crackpot samizat to unchained desire from its bondage. Crime. Justice cannot be obtained under any law. Action in accord with spontaneous nature, action which is just, cannot be defined by dogma. The crimes advocated in these broadsheets cannot be committed against self or other, but only against the mordant crystallization of ideas into structures of poisonous thrones and dominations. That is, not crimes against nature or humanity, but crimes by legal fiat. Sooner or later, the uncovering and unveiling of self-nature transmogrifies a person into a brigand, like stepping into another world then returning to this one to discover you've been declared a traitor, heretic, exile. The law waits for you to stumble on a mode of being, a soul different from the FDA-approved purple-stamped standard dead meat. And as soon as you begin to act in harmony with nature, the law garrotes and strangles you. So don't play the blessed liberal middle-class martyr. Accept the fact that you're a criminal and be prepared to act like one. Paradox. To embrace chaos is not to slide toward entropy, but to emerge into an energy like stars, a pattern of instantaneous grace, a spontaneous organic order completely different from the carrion pyramids of sultans, mufti, kadi, and grinning executioners. After chaos comes Eros, the principle of order implicit in the nothingness of the unqualified one. Love is structure, system, the only code untainted by slavery and drugged sleep. We must become crooks and con men to protect its spiritual beauty in a basil of clandestinity, a hidden garden of espionage. Don't just survive while waiting for someone's revolution to clear your head. Don't just sign up for the armies of anorexia or bulimia. Act as if you were already free. Calculate the odds. Step out. Remember the code duello. Smoke pot. Eat chicken. Drink tea. Every man his own vine and fig tree. Circle seven. Koran. Noble Drew Alley. Carry your Moorish passport with pride. Don't get caught in the crossfire. Keep your back covered, but take the risk. Dance before you calcify. The natural social model for ontological anarchism is the child gang or the bank robber's band. Money is a lie. This adventure must be feasible without it. Booty and pillage should be spent before it turns back into dust. Today is Resurrection Day. Money wasted on beauty will be alchemically transmuted into elixir. 
As my Uncle Melvin used to say, stolen watermelon tastes sweeter. The world is already remade according to the heart's desire, but civilization owns all the leases and most of the guns. Our feral angels demand we trespass, for they manifest themselves only on forbidden grounds. Highwayman, the yoga of stealth, the lightning raid, the enjoyment of treasure. Sorcery The universe wants to play. Those who refuse out of dry spiritual greed and choose pure contemplation forfeit their humanity. Those who refuse out of dull anguish, those who hesitate, lose their chance at divinity. Those who mold themselves blind masks of ideas and thrash around seeking some proof of their own solidity end by seeing out of dead men's eyes. Sorcery The systematic cultivation of enhanced consciousness or non-ordinary awareness and its development in the world of deeds and objects to bring about desired results. The incremental openings of perception gradually banish the false selves, our cacophonous ghosts, the black magic of envy and vendetta backfires because desires cannot be forced. Where our knowledge of beauty harmonizes with the ludus naturae, sorcery begins. No, not spoon-bending or horoscopy, not the golden dawn or make-believe shamanism, astral projection or the satanic mass. If it's mumbo-jumbo you want, go for the real stuff. Banking, politics, social science. Not that weak Blavatskian crap. Sorcery works at creating around itself a psychic, physical space or openings into a space of untrammeled expression. The metamorphosis of quotidian place into angelic sphere. This involves the manipulation of symbols, which are also things, and of people, who are also symbolic. The archetypes supply a vocabulary for this process and therefore are treated as if they were both real and unreal, like words. Imaginal yoga. The sorcerer is a simple realist. The world is real, but then so must consciousness be real since its effects are so tangible. The dullards find even wine tasteless, but the sorcerer can be intoxicated by the mere sight of water. Quality of perception defines the world of intoxication, but to sustain it and expand it, to include others, demands activity of a certain kind. Sorcery Sorcery breaks no law of nature because there is no natural law, only the spontaneity of natura naturans, the Tao. Sorcery violates laws which seek to chain this flow. Priests, kings, hierophants, mystics, scientists, and shopkeepers all brand the sorcery enemy for threatening the power of their charade, the tensile strength of their illusory web. A poem can act as a spell and vice versa, but sorcery refuses to be a metaphor for mere literature. It insists that symbols must cause events as well as private epiphanies. It is not a critique, but a remaking. It rejects all eschatology and metaphysics of removal, all bleary nostalgia and strident futurismo in favor of paroxysm or seizure of presence. Incense and crystal, dagger and sword, wand, robes, rum, cigars, candles, herbs like dried dreams, the virgin boy staring into a bowl of ink, wine and ganja, meat, yantras and gestures. Rituals of pleasure, the garden of hours, and sakis. The sorcerer climbs these snakes and ladders to a moment which is fully saturated with its own color. Where mountains are mountains and trees are trees, where the body becomes all time, the beloved all space. The tactics of ontological anarchism are rooted in this secret art. The goals of ontological anarchism appear in its flowering. Chaos hexes its enemies and rewards its devotees. This strange yellowing pamphlet, pseudonymous and dust-stained, reveals all. Send away for one split second of eternity. Advertisement What this tells you is not prose. It may be pinned to the board, but it's still alive and wriggling. It does not want to seduce you unless you're extremely young and good-looking. Enclose recent photo. Hakim Bey lives in a seedy Chinese hotel, where the proprietor nods out over newspaper and scratchy broadcasts of Peking opera. The ceiling fan turns like a sluggish dervish. Sweat falls on the page. The poet's kaftan is rusty. 
His ovals spill ash on the rug. His monologues seem disjointed and slightly sinister. Outside shuttered windows, the barrio fades into palm trees. The naive blue ocean, the philosophy of tropicalismo. Along a highway somewhere east of Baltimore, you pass an Airstream trailer with a big sign on the lawn, spiritual readings, and the image of a crude black hand on a red background. Inside, you notice a display of dream books, number books, pamphlets on hoodoo and santeria, dusty old nudist magazines, a pile of boys' life, treatises on fighting cocks, and this book, chaos. Like words spoken in a dream, portentous, evanescent, changing into perfumes, birds, colors, forgotten music. This book distances itself by a certain impassibility of surface, almost a glassiness. It doesn't wag its tail and it doesn't snarl, but it bites and humps the furniture. It doesn't have an ISBN number and it doesn't want you for a disciple, but it might kidnap your children. This book is nervous like coffee or malaria. It sets up a network of cutouts and safe drops between itself and its readers. But it's so bald-faced and literal-minded, it practically encodes itself. It smokes itself into a stupor. A mask, an auto-mythology, a map without place names, stiff as an Egyptian wall painting, nevertheless it reaches to caress someone's face and suddenly finds itself out in the street in a body embodied in light, walking awake almost satisfied. NYC, May 1st to July 4th, 1984. Thank you for listening to this sample. To continue listening to this book and for access to all of our other full audiobooks, please subscribe for $7.77 per month. Go to adultbrain.ca or follow the link in the show notes. This will be a completely separate podcast with a new RSS feed and will have all the titles from this feed as well. Thank you for your help and support in bringing rare and forgotten books to audio for the world.